Good morning, everyone. Uh, it is just great to be together, be among family and friends. And as Cheryl said, yesterday we were able to spend time with our brothers and sisters up in the San Luis Obispo area and Santa Barbara and come together and just sit at each other's feet, encourage one another, be challenged together, and draw close. It's always important to be in that learning posture. You know, uh, we were listening to Chris and Rebecca Tang, and, and Chris was sharing about a psychologist that studied more than 600,000 people taking surveys of their spiritual formation and said there is one key factor that will determine your spiritual growth. And so if you come back next week, I'll tell you what that is. It's your personal engagement with the Bible. That's it. The more time you spend in the Word of God, the more seriously you read it and apply it to your own life, that is the single most important difference maker in how your spiritual life's going to go. Not whether or not you're going to be happy or sad, that's different, but we're talking about your spiritual life. Being transformed into the likeness of of the Son of God. I was like, well, that's good to know. Because sometimes you think, well, how do we help one another? Well, apparently, the one key thing, be in our Bibles together. But Christianity is called by a lot of names. And in the world we live in, it, there's a lot of different flavors. But just because you claim it as Christianity doesn't mean it's authentic. You know, I remember when Cheryl and I and our boys were moving from Toronto out here to Los Angeles in November 1993. And, uh, you know, we were driving across Interstate 40. And if you've ever done that drive, when you get to, you know, like Texas and New Mexico and Arizona, like almost every rest area has authentic Navajo turquoise for sale. And then you're picking it up and looking at it, and then you see little stickers, made in China. So unless the Navajo Indians have a reservation over in China, and then shipping it back to their home territory, I don't think so. But I, I used to have to tell my wife, because in Toronto I got recruited to play bass in a band for, you know, retreats and conferences and stuff like that. And I was not highly skilled. I was rock steady. But so Cheryl would tell everyone who was a musician, oh, my husband's a bass player. I'm like, honey, no, there's a difference. I play bass. But that does not define me as a bass player. You know, when it comes to sports, I like golf, I like tennis. I've met many a skilled athlete until you actually go out on the court or the course. You know, just because you claim an expertise does not make you 
an expert. And just because you claim Christianity does not make it authentic. And we're going to be talking about that today. So this is a picture of a $100 bill. And if you've ever had one, <laughs> yeah, I'm married. I, I have receipts now. Uh, but every once in a while, I come across one of these for a short period of time. But there's all these cool kind of things. Like you can hold it up to the light and you can kind of look through it. And then you see the image of Benjamin Franklin embedded in the paper on the right. And they, there's all kinds of secret devices. And then they have the, the pen. You know, you ever tried to pay with a big bill and they look at you and they get the pen out. And it's like... <laughs> And they mark the bill to see what happens. You know, we don't always think about counterfeit currency. But I remember about 20 years ago selling a car that I owned. It was a Buick Grand National, 1987. And when I sold it, it got $12,800 in ones, fives, tens, twenties, fifties, and hundreds. And it wasn't sorted. It wasn't organized. I got Norm Holloway to come over uh, late at night and help me count it and be present and all that. Then I drove over to a friend's house late that night who had an in-ground safe, and I put it in the safe until the next morning, and then I went and I brought this Rouse plastic bag to Bank of America in a duffel bag, and then I remember walking up to the teller, and I said, I have a large cash deposit. Where should I go? And it was the one, you know, not like in Santa Clarita, they kind of have the open tellers. You can have that personal interaction. This branch had like the bulletproof everything and then just had the little window that you stuff everything under. And she was kind of irritated. She goes, right here. So I put the duffel bag up there and I just start shoving wads of cash. I mean, I am just like shoving it. I'm like to the safety of the other side of the bulletproof glass. And she's like, what are you doing? And I go, you told me right here. So I'm just stuffing all this money. And she calls her manager over and they have to get, you know, they have those special machines that you put a stack of bills in. And it's like, and then it's like, oh, here's how much it was, you know. And so they bring over extra of that. And so they're doing all this stuff and all of a sudden the the manager calls over somebody else and says, sir, if you can come over here and meet with me, one of the $100 bills is counterfeit. I'm like, well, so are you going to replace it? I said, nope. I said, well, what happens? And he goes, well, first of all, you get the privilege of filling out a form since you attempted to deposit a counterfeit $100 bill. Now, I'm sure the federal government's going to be fine because I really don't think you were purposely attempting to do this given the circumstances. I'm like, well, yeah, you're right. And they go, and unfortunately, you lose out on a $100 bill. Then the guy said, by the way, this is the best counterfeit bill I've ever seen. I go, well, I guess I won that honor. Winning that honor cost me $100, so there you go. But I didn't know. 
I thought I had the real thing. You know, in this case, it cost me a hundred bucks to find out that I'd gotten scammed. Maybe you've been on the receiving end where you thought you had access to the real thing. You know, it, you, you bought it on eBay and, and they said it was genuine. Only to find out it was a fake. You know, you, you're, you're all excited about your investment. You think, oh, I'm locked in. I'm going to have this like great thing. Only to find out at some point in the future, this is not real. They scammed me. You know, Christianity is not Christianity simply because we use the right label. There is authentic Christianity and there is fake Christianity. And there's a whole lot more than $100 at stake in the ability to fill out a form with the federal government. We're going to talk about two things today. Authentic Christianity has a cross. And it has a church. You know, both those seem like givens. Well, like, of course, Christianity has a cross. How are you going to have Christianity without a cross? Yeah, but we're not talking about just simply the knowledge that there is a cross. Maybe wearing one around your neck. No, it, it's, it's more than that. And in Colossians chapter 2, go ahead and turn over there, verse 13 to 15. Paul tells us about the cross. And he says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know, Paul talks about the cross and he says a couple things. He says, first of all, He said, yeah, it canceled that legal indebtedness. It nailed it to the cross. That's the forgiveness of sins that we talk about. Because until our sins get dealt with, we're not going to be able to live the life that God wants us to live. It's a problem. It's an eternal problem. And so that's got to get out of the way. But there's more than just forgiveness. Because he said the cross is where Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So what does that mean? He disarmed the powers and authorities? Hey, last time I checked, the Romans were still in power. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. The Jewish leaders, they were still in power when Jesus died on a cross. 
I don't see any disarming that happened. Nothing changed. Jesus went to the cross and was crucified. He said, what, what is this component? What are they talking about? What got disarmed here? What got disarmed was the world's way of living. Because up to that point in time, it was whoever in charge made the rules. And it, who had the power? Who got to define truth? Who was the greatest influence? That was where power was. And Jesus said, no, it's not. I'm going to put myself at the feet of that power. I'm going to put myself at the bottom of the rule makers. And I will die unjustly according to their system. And I'm going to open the door for a whole new way to live life. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Oh, in the days of Jesus, the people, they were stunned. They didn't know what was happening because it didn't fit the mold. The Messiah was one that was supposed to come and conquer He was supposed to have the most power, military might. He was going to win the battles. The Jewish people were going to triumph once again. And Jesus died cursed on a cross. People didn't know what to make of that. They go, there is nothing about him as Messiah that fits the mold of what I thought he was going to do. You know, if you feel oppressed, you want somebody to just take out the oppressor, right? Jesus says that's not where the power is. You see, the cross is the thing that unites us all. Yes, it forgives sins, but the cross is the answer for the hurts and the sorrows. Because it doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter how unfair it is. Jesus can look you eye to eye and say, I know how it feels. Something happens in life, we go, it's not fair. Jesus says, I know how it feels. But he says the way of the cross is a totally different way to live life. And in Jesus' day, people rejected that view of a Messiah. They were like, no way. This is not the answer. This is not the way. And in some ways, are we any different? We hear a message about laying down our life, the way of the cross. That, hey, we can be unjustly treated and we're okay, not because it's right. but because there's something bigger going on. That's the way of the cross. We don't need to be right. 
You know, you hear that message, you go, uh-uh. Nope. Because if I choose that path, people will take advantage of me. They will hurt me. And I'm not taking that road. And that's why 1 Corinthians 1 reads, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What was foolishness is not the idea that on the cross our sins are forgiven. That wasn't the foolish part. It was life according to the cross. It was the Jesus way of life that although he had all the power, he submitted himself to unjust authority. That was the way of the cross. You see, the way of the cross, it's not a health and wealth gospel. Life according to the cross, there's no guarantee of just joy upon joy upon joy. You know, there's a flavor of Christianity out there that seems that God guarantees, if you love Him, health, happiness, wealth, prosperity. And that's the mark of God's blessing in your life. Well, then what do you do when you suffer? Where does that fit? We start asking, well, maybe God doesn't love me. Why would He let this happen? If God loves me, why would I suffer in this way? Why would I feel lonely? Why would I feel unfairly treated if God loves me? Well, if we think Christianity is supposed to guarantee all those things, then we have a problem with the cross. You see, the way of the cross values others more than you value yourself. So how do you feel about the cross? What kind of cross are you hoping to have in Christianity? You know, all too often the cross that we want is the one where our sins are forgiven, but not the one that demands that we live the way of the cross. See, you can't have one without the other. And it's not authentic Christianity. Unless it calls for a radical living the way according to the cross. The way that Jesus lived his life. So what's our response to the cross? Well, Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, Whoever would come after me must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. So Jesus says, well, one response is that we got to carry Our cross daily. Galatians 2 verse 20. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Paul says, live a crucified way of life. What are we talking about there? Well, that's the cross-centered living. What's our response to the cross? Well, Jesus carry it. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus says, you know, the weight of the cross is going to be felt in the intrusion of self. 
You see, authentic Christianity has a cross that irritates the self. It imposes itself on the self. It inconveniences the self. It annoys the self. It contradicts the self. You know, a lot of people look for churches by trying to find one that makes me feel comfortable. You go, well, there's times where we need that comfort. But then what about when the self gets irritated and the boundaries start getting pushed? What does the self do with that? You see, Jesus says, whoever would come after me must deny themselves. And take up their cross daily and follow me. Authentic Christianity will push the boundaries of what you feel comfortable with. If you're looking for a Christianity where that never occurs, it's out there. But it's a counterfeit $100 bill. You're going to be filling out a form with the federal government. And Jesus It's a fake Christianity. Just because you go to church doesn't mean it's authentic. Say, so how do you feel about a cross in your life? Are you feeling any nudging? Are you feeling any battles that at the heart level boil down to? I just don't feel. Like, I want to do this. Jesus says, that's a good sign. And if you haven't experienced that, well, then you're either dead or hardened or you're experiencing fake Christianity. Because even Jesus felt that way. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, there's any way this cup will be taken from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Because authentic Christianity was pushing the boundaries of what he felt comfortable with. It's the only thing I saw him pray his entire life three times. He raised the dead with one prayer. But this battle, he prayed three times before he got resolved. We are no different. And neither is authentic Christianity. It pushes the boundaries. You know, when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Who did the crucifying? Paul did not say, and against my will, they threw me in a corner and they made me live this way. No, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. Oh, that doesn't mean that there was no battles. But Paul was the one making those decisions in the battle. He took responsibility to live out these obligations. You know, I'm so proud of our newest sister, Jen Chavez, and our almost newest sister, Diana Moreno. You know what? 
They got their sins forgiven. But you know what? So much more than that. They said, no, sign me up for the way of the cross. I want to help others. I want to live for others. I will lay down my life. I will live the way of the cross. That's why you've got to count the cost. I mean, why would you have to count the cost just to get your sins forgiven? It's all good for you. No, the, the real hard part of Christianity is not getting the sins forgiven. It's living as somebody who has their sins forgiven. That's why we count the cost. It's not about comfort or convenience. Oh, it's the way of the cross. What's your response to the cross? You know, the second thing I want to talk about is the church. We also live in a society that really minimizes church. Now, they, people will feel fine about attending church, but they will minimize the church as an influencer, as a commitment part, as a daily component of life. You know, I know growing up, church to me was what I did on Sunday morning. And I would even tell people, oh yeah, so-and-so, they're my church friends. And then I have my other friends. And it's not that you can't have friends outside of the church. I hope you do. Jesus was known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners, not a guy who hung out with his 12 only. But the fact is we kind of compartmentalized church. So, you know, if we had a rough Saturday night, then church is the place you go on Sunday morning. You feel a little better, and that's great. But look, look at what the Bible says about the church. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 10 to 12. It says, His intent, it's God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Did you catch it? It says his intent is that now through the church, the mystery, the glory, God's plan would be revealed through the church. You know, you ever typed up a really important paper? And, you know, you're getting ready to turn it in. And then you went to print it out. And your printer was out of paper. Or out of ink. And you go, yeah, but I have this really incredible paper. I just like, I want my professor to read it. It's, I put so much work in it. But there's a problem. The prof can't read it because you're out of paper. Ah, oh, I'm out of ink. 
And Staples is closed. But now you're thinking, okay, what friends do I have that have a printer? And um, can I email it to them? And then can they print it out? And you're going through gymnastics. Why? Because having a great paper that's in unreadable fashion doesn't do anyone any good. So God has all this mystery and glory and plan. And he goes, man, I can't wait for people to see it. He says, well, how are they going to see it? And he just goes, oh, it's, it's through the church. How are they going to understand it? How are they going to get the message? And God's like, man, it's amazing. The church. You see, the church is where God's glory is revealed. Just broken, weak, flawed men and women created in the image of God. And all of our diversity, young and old, all of it, God's like, it's amazing. I can't wait for people to see my glory. And so when people go, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm tight with God. I don't know about committing to a church. That doesn't even make any sense biblically. But you probably know people that think they got a strong, committed Christian life, but refuse to be attached or connected to a church. You see, the church is where God's glory is revealed. You know, it was amazing yesterday, uh, sitting at the feet of different people, uh, Jerry and Erlynn Sugarman, uh, elders in the North region and good friends for, you know, almost three decades, were just sharing about life that they were up in Antelope Valley and they heard that our ministry in San Diego was going to send a church to Los Angeles to to send a mission team down there and they were so excited this was like 31, 32 years ago and so they said okay we want to be connected so there was no mission team yet in Los Angeles so what did they do the entire congregation of I think he said it was about 45 people would drive down to San Diego, leaving Antelope Valley at 4 a.m. to be there for church. And then after church, they would go to the beach and they'd have picnics and they'd spend hours and having fellowship. And then they would drive back to Antelope Valley and get home late at night with all their visitors to church. And people loved it. And they were just waiting and dreaming and praying. For that group to start in Los Angeles. Four and a half hours one way. To go to church. And they would do that. Once a month. Just because they wanted to have that connection. And then the mission team began. 30 years ago down in West LA. Group of 50. From Boston, San Francisco. And San Diego. Moved to West LA. 
So start that mission team. So where was church if you're in Antelope Valley? Every midweek, Wednesday nights, every Sunday service was down in West L.A. So they drove. Every Wednesday, every Sunday, and countless other meetings. Until over a year after that, the North Region began. Now, the North Region is what we're a part of in Santa Clarita, San Fernando Valley, out in Simi Valley and Shoreline and up in Santa Barbara. But the roots of the North Region were that group in Antelope Valley that were driving to San Diego once a month. And then when the mission team came, over an hour each way on a Wednesday night, on a Sunday Jerry said the first year his Bible talk had 42 people baptized in Antelope Valley doing the drive all the way down to West L.A. every Wednesday, every Sunday. Oh, well, they just probably had free schedules back then, so they had lots of time. No one then probably had any kids. No. But isn't that amazing? It's incredible. And I was inspired just to hear that story because... Santa Clarita, it's like we're like the third generation roots. You had the Antelope Valley, and then they started a ministry in the San Fernando Valley, and then eventually Santa Clarita, who was driving down to, you know, Woodland Hills, and then Chatsworth twice a week for services, and then Santa Clarita made the big step. They're going to have their own Wednesday night midweek. So they'd still drive down on Sundays. All their visitors, friends. And then eventually got our own Sunday service. You know, it's easy to think, well, we just always met at Rancho Pico, didn't we? Even though Rancho Pico's been here, I think, 16 years now, didn't? And then a Royal Seiko before that. Hasn't that what we always did? No. We were part of something greater. And there was sacrifice that had gone before us. But you hear those stories and you go, that's amazing inspiring you know what that is that's God's glory being revealed without that commitment without that sacrifice that wouldn't have happened you know the second verse we have up here is in 1 Corinthians 1 and it's, it's the second half of verse 12 and 13, and I'm not going to read all of it. But if you start in verse 12, it's talking about the body of Christ, and there's many parts of the body. And then you see that there's challenges in the church because people are concerned about what role they have and differences that might be in there, and they're starting to say things like, I don't need you, I don't need this, I don't need that. And it's like, Paul says, We need each other. And you put two sinful humans in the same place and have true, genuine interaction, you're going to have good times and difficult times. That's just the way it is because we're all human. So they have relational issues. They got challenges. And they're starting to say things like, nah, I'll do this on my own. I don't need you. And he goes, no. Each one of you is a part of the body of Christ. We need the whole body. 
We need the whole thing. There's no parts that are indispensable. And it is not true that you're going to do it on your own. Okay, so, you know, the Bible was not written with chapters and verse numbers. And they're handy marking places so we can know where to turn. But sometimes it does a real disservice to the scriptures because 1 Corinthians, it was written as one letter. So you just kind of read it all the way through and you get it. So, you know, in 1 Corinthians 12, we're dealing with relational problems in the church. And then what's 1 Corinthians 13? And then I'll show you the most excellent way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Oh, that's the wedding verse. That is not the context of 1 Corinthians 13. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians 13 was what we read about in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, 1 Corinthians 13, it's about love, so you can use it for a wedding. You can use it in any relationship. But the context was relational problems in the church. And they said, I'm going to show you the most excellent way. And he said, you can be so knowledgeable and fathom all mystery and knowledge. But you know what? Let me tell you something. If you don't have love, all you are is a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You think you're an expert on whatever topic it is. You act in an unloving way. All you are is a clanging gong. That's all you are. Bong, bong. That's, that's, that's your expertise. That's, that's what he says. He said, you can make great sacrifices. Surrender your body to the flames. It says, if you're not loving, that was a waste. I mean, great sacrifice, but you don't have love. He says, the greatest is love. Why? Because God's glory is revealed in the church. Why? Because God takes people who are so radically different from one another, and he puts them all together, and he goes, okay, you're my family. You can't trade your family in. They're your family. We all have a cousin Eddie somewhere in our family. We know all the dirt of our family. We know the good and the bad. There's family you get along with, family you don't get along with. But you know what? When family gets together, you get together. You know why? Because it's family. If your kids disappoint you, they're still your kids. Parents, you embarrass your kids, they're still your mom and dad. It goes both ways. But see, with family... You don't go, oh, I'm kind of annoyed with family. I, you're, you're officially not on the family tree. No, because an, Ancestry.com says otherwise. <laughs> and so does Jesus. And that's why the church is such an incredible training ground. Because if there was no church life expected... You could mistakenly think you're really close to God and be a really unloving person. 
I always tell people, hey, you got, don't get faked out in the church. You go, oh, I got so many friends, I'm loving. No, all your friends are required to love you. Just remember that. But you look around this room. This room is amazing. Because we're all just alike. Not. We're so different. I got my brother who's getting married. Bula. He, he, he texted. I said, I texted him Bula. I don't know how to spell that in Fijian. And then he, he texted me back like, Bula Venuka or something like that. I don't know what he said. I assumed it was really encouraging. <laughs> but I'm like, this is so awesome. I got a friend from Fiji. Like, I go home to Ottumwa, Iowa. They don't quite know what to make of my life. I got friends from, like, almost every country of the world. Why? Because of the church. You see, the church is where we get to work out all of our practical love issues. Sin. You know, practical love issues sounds better, doesn't it? No, where people disappoint us, they hurt our feelings, they let us down, we don't get what we want, we're annoyed. I needed help. They weren't there for me. You see, that's why we have the church. It's the practical training ground for godliness. And so the idea of authentic Christianity without the church, it doesn't make any sense. Because you're in a fantasy land thinking you're going to be like Jesus. If you can't be like Jesus with another sinner in your life. So what do we do? 1 John 4, verse 19 through 21 says, listen, we love God because he first loved us. It says, we cannot claim that we love our brother whom we've seen if we do not love. Wait, I said that wrong. We cannot claim that we love God whom we've not seen. If we do not love our brother whom we have seen. So your relationships, the condition of your relationships, answers the question, how am I doing spiritually? That isn't, that's not, well, if somebody sinned against you, that means you have bad relationships. No, because people are always going to sin. Not all the time, but you're going to be sinned against on a regular basis. So that's not what I'm talking about here. What's the overall condition of your relationships? It answers the question, how am I doing spiritually? What, how else do we respond? Ephesians 4. We've got to take responsibility. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's talking about relationships in the church, and he simply says that we speak the truth in love. The whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. It builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Make a commitment relationally. 
Take responsibility for a connection. What does that look like? You're an initiator. You're not a solar panel collector. That's not a, that's not a ligament. To just exist and let people radiate their glory on you. That's not, that's not good relationship technique. You've got to be actively engaged in the process. You've got to be a giver. Yes, you do receive. But it's got to be a mutually owned commitment to what? Individually, collectively. That's one-on-one. That's the church. That's your, your family group. That's small group. It's being committed at all levels. My buddy Steve Lounsbury is leading the ministry in the West. And they've got, they've got a relational covenant that they're making this Sunday. And you know what one of the things they're going to talk about? Being 15 minutes early to church. You know why you come to church 15 minutes early? To talk to people for 15 minutes before church begins, which then you're supposed to stop talking. You say, why come 15 minutes early? Because if I care about you, I want to be able to talk. Why do you stay late? Why do you give financially? You know, it takes, it takes sacrifice to make relationships go. You know, we're not committed relationally simply because we give something. Look what David said. He goes, I'm not going to give something to the Lord, a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Remember hearing a ser- sermon by John Louis. And he said, God may have some of your money, but he may not have your heart. And then he says, but if God has your heart, he will have your money. And if you've heard John Louis preach, he preaches just like that. Are you committed to one another at the sacrificial level? Or it's, what's the minimum I got to do? You see, authentic Christianity has the church because God's glory is revealed in the church. And I look around at this room and you know what I see? The glory of God. You say, what kind of Christianity do you want? You know, I felt bummed because I lost out on a hundred bucks. There's something a whole lot more important at stake. Question for you is, what's your Christianity going to look like? Because you have a choice to make. You know, if you're visiting with us, we want you to be a part of what we're doing. Next Sunday, we're kicking off a 40-day series. I hope that you will come and connect. I hope that you will come and commit, that you'll be a part of our family. That you'll be involved. We have midweeks on Tuesday night at 7.30 at the Methodist Church across from Best Buy. We hope you'll join us there. You know, we're excited to get to know you. We're not perfect. But I'll tell you what. We're an authentic Christianity. You can trust what you see. Not because we're so awesome, but because God 
is so awesome. But if you're hoping to find Christianity without your cross, if you're hoping to find Christianity without commitment to a church, oh, it's available. But it's not authentic Christianity. And I want to challenge each one of us to make that decision, to live that life, and let's go after it as what we live out is that printed page of the glory of God for somebody else to read. They get to see the real thing through your life. And so let's display that glory on a continual basis as we live our life. Let's stand and we close in a final song.